Welcome to the Qualitalks Podcast, a show about pharma and GMP. The pharmaceutical industry is a fascinating and complex field, and it takes countless people to bring a product to the market. In this podcast, we bring you some of the industry's brightest minds who will share their wisdom with you. You will learn about various subjects such as GMP, new trends in pharma, and leadership. This episode is sponsored by Dot Compliance, the industry's first ready-to-use quality management solution powered by the Salesforce platform. Deploying a new EQMS has never been quicker or more cost-effective. And now, please welcome your host, Jan Kugel. Welcome to the Qualitox Podcast. I'm Jan Kugel, your host, and our guest today is Luis Charles Chavaria. Luis has worked in DFDA for 30 years. He was a supervisor investigator and has testified in U.S. federal courts to support persecution and seizures. Today, he will share internal knowledge about how the FDA operates and some details that may surprise you and change the way you prepare for an FDA visit at the, your manufacturing facility. Before we get to the talk, I want to remind you that if you have any questions about GMP, you can now look for the answer on the Qualistory Social Q&A engine at www. Now, let's get to the talk with Luis. Luis, hi, welcome to the Qualitox podcast. It's a real pleasure talking to you and somebody who has been in the pharmaceutical industry for such a long time, and especially in the FDA as um, in many roles. So welcome. Thank you very much, Jan. I appreciate your invitation and hopefully we can learn from each other in the process. Thank you very much. Can you give a short background about your time in the FDA and about the different or the most interesting roles that you have done there? Quite a question. It covers a lot of years and decades. But uh, basically, I came to the FDA from the Justice Department as a former uh, agent, law enforcement with a biology background. And um, I started my career in Los Angeles, California. From there, I learned a lot of the basics. And I was known as a consumer safety officer or the other title, investigator. And at that point, you're kind of a generalist. You know, you take on whatever program your supervisor assigns to you. And you go to multiple schools, you know, you go to drug school, you go to medical device school, you go to canning school. So at one point or another, you're one of the most trained individuals out there. But as time goes on, you start developing your own likes and your own preferences for programs. And uh, from Los Angeles, I applied to become a medical device specialist in Salt Lake City, Utah. And from there, I mainly did medical devices and some drug work also. After that, after a couple of years, I applied to be something called a resident in charge. And that's basically an investigator that's in charge of the office. You're not a supervisor, but you, you carry most of the roles of being a supervisor. You manage the office. I did that in Las Vegas, Nevada for eight years, actually. At that point, I was doing a lot of work in medical devices, drug studies, BIMO, clinical studies, GLPs, good lab practices, 
basically in Las Vegas, I was the resident in charge. So I was doing a little of everything, in, including criminal work. So my background in the Justice Department fit perfectly. You know, I was trained as a federal police officer in, in evidence development and so on. So it was just a, a, a natural fusing of, of my experience. After Las Vegas, Nevada, you know, I was selected as a supervisory investigator to supervise investigators on the border with Mexico. And uh, that was also very challenging. I was basically running the international ports with all the imports of uh, everything that is FDA regulated. And that includes... Uh, everything from medical devices, because across the border in El Paso, there's a very large medical device, maquila operation. So you, you get to see a lot of medical devices. I was also going out on inspections with my people. I was supervising at one time up to 20 investigators, you know, throughout the different ports. After about nine years doing that, I was selected for the Foreign Service to represent the Food and Drug Administration in Latin America. So I did that for my last two years in my career. So you can say that I saw a lot <laughs> yeah, during that time. Really interesting and um, fulfilling career, I think. And uh, it's really interesting that you came from law enforcement, right? So we talked about it uh, also before uh, the podcast uh, about how the FDA is a federal, right? It's a federal organization and it uh, has a specific purposes and um, that many people don't realize about it. Do FDA investigators undergo special training that other regular quality specialists, quality auditors don't undergo? Yes, very good question. And the answer is yes. People, you're right, they forget that they carry a badge, okay? The vast majority of the FDA investigators do not carry a badge. Until a few years ago, the FDA formed a special division of people that are armed. They're called a, uh, the Office of Criminal Investigation, and uh, they carry weapons. But ironically, you know, they're, they're really not trained on the basics of, uh, because they come from other sources. They come from customs. They come from Secret Service, you know, and they're more on the Title 18 of the U.S. Code, where they try to document falsification of data given to the government under a conspiracy and so on. You know, it's, it's a little different. They use a lot of the scientific data that was captured during the legal inspection process of the FDA, and they develop it further. But for all practical purposes, the ones that we should fear in the world of FDA, GMP, are the regular FDA investigators. It's quite interesting the, how different it is, probably from different uh, government agencies in other countries. For example, in Europe, so they are more health-oriented, but FDA, with all these experiences of investigation of the federal body, they also have a lot to do with, uh, with criminal charges and uh, looking for uh, criminal activities in the pharmaceutical environment. So it's probably more intense than the other organizations. Would you say that? I absolutely agree with you. Having worked with many different organizations throughout the world because of the jobs that I've had, I've worked with uh, 
Scotland Yard, for example, you know, looking for a, a pharmacist. I have worked with the Mexican federal police. It is very different, okay? The best way that I can describe it is you take a, a scientist and you make him a cop, and especially when I was able to use my police training in evidence development. That is the biggest difference in just being a regular auditor and being an FDA auditor because the auditor will collect his information and pass it on to his supervisor. The FDA investigator will collect this information and will pass it to a long, long line of revisions that ultimately might end up in court, okay? And that long journey of your documentation of evidence is scrutinized by many different levels, but it must meet the basics of evidence. It must be evidence that can be used in a court. So that said, you are the eyes and the ears of the agency, and what you collect does not belong to you. It belongs to the system. It belongs to the federal evidence development system. You no longer have possessions of it once you document it and you record it and you state something, okay? If you feel you made a mistake, you better go back and correct it, okay? Because ultimately, you're going to end up in court. And I have testified, by the way, in federal court, something very, very rare for FDA investigators to do, okay? FDA does not go to court very often. Rarely does it go to court. There's various reasons for that, okay? But one of the most common reasons is that there's so much evidence. The preponderance of evidence is so great. The person fighting the case will attempt to negotiate something instead of going to, to court. But once in a while, it does go to court. And yes, once in a while, it loses in court too. The FDA loses in court, okay? So it's a fair game. The court process is very, very challenging, even to the best of the trained people. So you really need to be careful with how you collect evidence as an investigator because you know it's going to land in court. Because if, as we see in many movies, there are a lot of issues in court because you collected evidence in not a lawful way and then they're not valid and so on and so on. So probably you also have such uh, issues also in the FDA. When you go to audit uh, companies, you need to make sure that you follow procedures so it's uh, also sustainable in court, right? Absolutely, absolutely. As a matter of fact, one of the little famous green books that you see most FDA investigates called the diary, the diary that they keep. They keep a diary to, to log statements and evidence that they see. Once you're done with, with those books, you return them to your supervisor and they're, and they're kept with the agency. They don't belong to you anymore. Even though you were the one that generated them, you cannot take them with you. Because if there's a case two, three years down the road and they need to research what happened during that inspection, that diary is going to be very valuable. Okay, They're going to go back to that diary. So it's evidence. And as an FDA investigator, you're trained how to handle evidence, okay, how to process evidence, very much like a policeman is. I was very fortunate that I came from the Justice Department, so I was heavily trained in evidence development. So I used all that information to my advantage. I, I worked a lot of criminal cases in, in California, in Utah. I worked with the FBI 
many, many times, many times in several states. Anything dealing with uh, drug counterfeiting, for example, counterfeiting of trademarks, labeling, all that, your path frequently interwines with, twines with the uh, FBI, you know, so it's, you work very closely with that agency. What would you say that uh, may surprise people because they don't realize that if they is looking for this and this uh, and those and those uh, things, and those are, those are their goals? I'll start with one of the most basic differences in being a, what you would call just a private auditor, but pretty much like I am now, okay, versus an official commission FDA investigator. One thing that you notice right off is that FDA investigators do not use checklists, okay? That's something very common when you hire a third party to come, you know, do an audit. They'll have this checklist, and then they send the checklist back to their boss. Their boss inserts it into this fancy-looking report, you know, that has a big landscape in the front and the name of the auditing company on top and you know, a lot of boilerplate statements that we're here to serve you, we're here to help you, thank you for choosing the best, you know, auditor in the world, blah, blah, blah. The FDA is a, it's a different animal, okay? They do not look for a checklist that they check off when they're in front of you. They might have one mentally, but they're not doing it, you know, line by line. What they're doing is they're assessing risk, okay? Risk in your company. And They look for systemic issues. They look for quality and risk issues. And they start developing a case where they have to prove that what they're looking at, number one, there's risk in it, okay? Big risk. The most powerful evidence that an FDA investigator can collect, I saw, mm -hmm. okay? I saw, I observed. That is the most mm -hmm. purest, most powerful evidence that they can collect and they document that you can go through that whole process of evidence scrutiny and maybe if you end up in court they're going to ask you what were you doing there and you're going to say i was there conducting an official inspection okay then they go into the definition of what an official inspection is for the court you know for the judge etc but more importantly they're going to ask what did you see And you start with, I observed, I saw the individual walk into the clean room without even putting on a suit. I saw the rat run across in front of me. I saw the supervisor ordering the employees to destroy. I saw, I saw very powerful evidence, okay? Because to dispel that, the defense is going to have to say, well, yeah, do you really know what a rat is? They don't want to open that window, okay? Because Yan has been in hundreds of warehouses and he certainly knows what a rat is, okay? So most of the time they stipulate to that, okay? It's when you don't challenge the, the professional knowledge because it's so obvious, you know, you're wasting your time. You go on to other issues. But back to that evidence, I saw it's very powerful. The second type is documentation, okay? That you produce the document that immortalize the process that you're trying to, to prove. So that's all part of evidence development. And you're trained how to use it. You know, you just don't pick up evidence and you go back to the office and dump it anywhere. No? You have to 
federal guys, you have to document it. You have to, you know, you take pictures, the data, the digital data. Back in the old days when we had film, okay, we had to put the film inside a little package and seal it. Now you do it with the digital data, okay? So you're trained, you know, in all those methods. What you do with that data or that, we'll talk about samples, how important samples become to evidence, okay? You collect something, it's called sampling, you process it and you give it to somebody called a sample custodian, okay? And it's locked away in an FDA lab and it's secure there and nobody can access it, okay? Unless you have a formal reason for doing it, they take it out, they document it. In other words, the chain of command, okay? Throughout the entire process, it's documented. Date and time and reason why you're taking that evidence out to look at it. And the sample custodian is the one that takes care of all the administration of all that process. So uh, it's police work. It's evidence development. It's not just auditing, okay? Now, let me give you another example, a very powerful example, the sample, the FDA sample. The FDA sample is taken for various reasons. It's not just taken to be analyzed for something you suspect it's in the product, okay? It's taken for legal reasons. Number one, to establish the authority of the FDA over that product, the jurisdiction, okay? FDA investigators are trained in basically four concepts. Jurisdiction, that you have the authority, the legal authority. Interstate commerce, that it's actually in interstate commerce or about to be introduced in interstate commerce. That's why it's a federal agency involved, okay? The violation, the violation has to be documented too. And then ultimately, responsibility. You have to tag somebody with that. That contaminated product did not move itself in interstate commerce, okay? You have to find out who did it, who was responsible for it. And that is responsibility. So all those things have to be documented by the FDA investigator. Mm -hmm. So as you can see, we are moving far and far away from that checklist that a typical, you know, auditor uses. That's why it's so complicated, you know? And that's why you have to learn how to read the reports from the FDA, okay? You've heard this, oh, I didn't get a 43. I must be perfect. I don't have any problems. Not necessary, okay? Let me explain you. I'll explain to you why that's not true. First of all, let's talk about a 483, the notice of observations, right? That is one of the most powerful documents in the world of FDA regulated products. Why do I say it's very powerful? Well, because companies are traded and sold based on 483s. You end up with a very nasty 483. That's not going to do much for the encouragement of your stockholders or, or you know, any other company willing to buy you out. They pay a lot of attention to 43s, okay? But this is the uniqueness of a 43. It's called a notice of observations, and that's exactly what it is. They are not violations of law. They are not violations of regulations, okay? Chances are a lot of them will be, okay? But remember this, that's the first step in documenting evidence in an FDA inspection. Those are the observations of the investigators. That's what the investigators saw. But there's a second step that is critical and very important. Those observations have to be connected to an actual violation of regulation, okay? And that's done by a separate department. 
in the FDA. It's done by compliance. Compliance will take those observations from the investigators and link them to an actual violation of a regulation. Then you can say you have violations. Okay? Right. So people don't realize that. They see a 43 and they say, oh my God, these are all violations of regulations. Not necessarily. Okay? Now, granted, when you have a very experienced investigator, he rarely makes those kinds of mistakes. He knows what he's talking about most of the time when he writes something down on the 43. But a trainee, a newer investigator, they commit a lot of mistakes. Believe me, I was a supervisor, okay? I was a supervisor over many investigators. And my one of my main functions was to review those 43s that the it was the first level of review, okay? The first level of official review in the agency before it even went to compliance. So I would sit down with the investigator and, and ask them about a particular observation. And the investigator, sometimes the newer ones, were not able to articulate the evidence to support that observation. Now, if you're not able to articulate very well, you're in trouble, okay? Right away, you're in trouble. Because that observation cannot stand. You cannot write something subjectively, okay? Everything must be objectively. You must have evidence to support that observation, okay? Now, that said, can you imagine, sometimes you have investigators that see something or suspect something, but they're not able to capture the evidence to support it. So it, didn't mean, it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. It could have happened, but because he didn't have the evidence to support that observation, the company might walk away, you know? Right. That's the bottom line. They might walk away. Right. Our customers set high expectations for their teams and need to be sure they perform to these expectations. Many companies struggle to find time to train their employees and often delegate this responsibility to a department that has not got the expertise to master the subject matter. As a result, they burden their team with the conventional training material, which can be so dull that they shut down. We invest time into helping our customers become GMP compliant in a fast and efficient manner to make sure their teams perform to the highest standards. We specialize in creating engaging training that will make your employees confident and motivated in using their new learned skills at the workplace. Visit us at www.qualistory.com or contact us at service at qualistory.com for more information. So you mentioned that the most powerful word that an investigator can say in court is uh, I saw. How do you produce the evidence for that, right? So the red, maybe only the investigator has, uh, has seen the red or uh, maybe the others won't admit it. So how do you bring the evidence for that? Oh, very good question. Okay. In the rules of evidence in court, you know, you have something, let's say if you saw it, you are the witness, okay? The direct witness, or you heard it. If somebody else saw it standing next to you, that person is going to be subpoenaed into court, okay? Because he is known as a material witness, a witness to the material at hand, okay? So they bring him in and they'll say, Mr. Yan, were you present on April the 5th at the company? And we're going to say, well, yes, I, I, you know, I'm the quality, I was a quality control manager at the time. Okay. Did you see John Smith run out the back door 
with uh, half of the uh, DMR under his hand. And remember, you can't lie in court because they're going to prove if you're lying, they're going to bring extra charges against you individually, you know, besides the company. So you're going to say, well, you know, defense is going to try to work it around. And you're going to say, well, I did see Mr. John Smith run out. I couldn't see what he had under his hand, <laughs> you know. You understand what I'm getting? They're, yeah. they're attacking the evidence, okay? But you're not lying. You can't lie because if you say, nope, I had no idea that Mr. Smith, well, guess what? Yeah, I've got John over here that was standing next to you, okay? And we're, we're, we're putting him on the stand and asking, John, did you see Mr. Yan stand there? Oh, yes, he was there next to me looking at the whole thing. So, you know, you got material witnesses to support your statements. And then you have direct evidence. And then you have the lower levels of indirect evidence, okay? But you try to avoid things like hearsay that you cannot prove, that you just heard it, but it doesn't lead to, to evidence. You know, yeah, I'm not a lawyer, okay? I'm not a lawyer, but I certainly have been burned by them. I have supported them. I have lived with them for many years. So you learn a little, you know? That's what makes an agent different and an FDA investigator different from your typical auditor. How does it work, the building of the evidence over the case? So you explained quite a lot about it, but are there specific additional steps or phases which companies should be aware of? Evidence is the key to FDA's existence, okay? Evidence based on risk, risk from the product, okay? You combine those two worlds and you have the FDA. But let's talk a little about laws and how important they are and how powerful they are and how they work to the advantage of FDA in certain cases, okay? A company that is located outside of the United States that produces product for the United States, okay? It doesn't really matter. You can talk about corn or you can talk about medical devices or you can talk about sterile drugs. It doesn't matter. It has to go through a certain importation process, right? People don't realize that. Well, first of all, they don't even realize that the FDA can inspect you even if you're located in Germany, right? A lot of them say, oh, you know, I'm in Hamburg. Why, why, why should I worry? You know, I sell to the United States. I export to the United States. But why should I worry? So they usually expect it, but usually in the USA, the FDA probably can knock on the door of a company without a notice. When it's in Europe or overseas, usually there is a notice. The authority of FDA to inspect you in Germany. Do you know what authority they have? None. You are inviting them, okay? You are inviting them to come and look at your plan. It's a foreign country. They have no authority. You know, it's American law, American court system. You're there on invitation. So because you're there on invitation, you have to go there as a diplomat. Okay. FDA investigators carry diplomatic passports when they're overseas. I have one. Anyone that works overseas. Okay. We're diplomats. They're there on invitation. Indirectly, believe it or not, sort of a blackmail scheme okay now some people might get offended by saying wait a minute what is this nut talking about you know saying blackmail but this is how it works yeah i want you to invite me to your plant because you're exporting drugs or devices to the united states and you're gonna say oh no go to hell i'm not gonna invite you to my plant oh okay well thank you we're gonna close the, the border to your products into the united states okay see how Indirectly, they're, they're telling you, no. now, let's say 
like most good businessmen will say, oh, yes, come to my plant. <laughs> look at my product. Look at my GMP. Look at my controls. And you're going to say, great, we'll be there August the 30th. But remember, we're going into a foreign country. This is the United States. We're not going to invade your country. We need permissions. We're diplomats. We need to advise their government, their health system. We are going to inspect Mr. Gans factory on this day. You're welcome to accompany us if you want, you know, the German health authority or whatever. Is that okay? Ultimately, the foreign country is going to say, yeah, that's okay. Or no, no, it's not okay. You know, but most of the time, yes, it's okay because they want to export products to the United States and vice versa. Right. There's a lot of other diplomatic implications to this whole process. Anyway. You advise you're going to be there August the 30th, and you go in and you start inspecting, okay? As an FDA investigator, you start inspecting using the same tools that you use for any inspection, okay? They inspect, and they see stuff that they don't like. <laughs> and I'm not talking about the color of your walls, okay? <laughs> I'm talking about those hardcore GMP deviations, and they write them up, and they issue you a 483. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. I invited you to my house and you end up issuing me a nasty notice. What's going on here? Well, <laughs> that's the way the process functions. We're here to capture evidence to see if your product is admissible into the United States. But here's the catch. Yeah, here's a big catch. OK, the evidence that's collected overseas has to meet a certain legal burden. And that burden is the appearance of a violation. Appearance, it doesn't have to be an beyond reasonable doubt. It doesn't have to be unrefutable evidence. The only burden that they have to meet is if it appears to be in violation, okay? And that's based on the investigator's opinion. Professional opinion, no doubt, but opinion. See how the, the law works to the advantage of FDA? in a foreign company, okay? Right, so in the USA, they would have to find harsher evidence or more concrete evidence. Exactly, the level is higher. I think there is a nice balance here. So from one side, they, they cannot come unnoticed like in the USA, but the other, on the other hand, you must be much more prepared for them. That's a valid point. I won't argue that, that that's a very good point. But you see the... The difference is now within this few minutes that we have been talking, I have taken you away from that checklist so far, <laughs> you know, that you don't even see that checklist where we started out, right? That's true. And that's my job, okay? That's what I do for a living, and that's how I challenge, and that's how I develop a case. And that's how I help my customers also to avoid that, okay? Now my job is to defend the company through a series of maneuvers that do not include lying, no lying, no falsifying of evidence. But nobody says that you have to open the book during the first try, right? How do you minimize the collateral damage then? How do you help your clients do it? There are, there are two, two things that are typically in the defense world. Number one, if there was evidence to support the violation or the crime, okay? You have to challenge the evidence. Number two, if you cannot challenge the evidence, then you challenge how that evidence was processed, okay? How was it was developed, who developed it, and so on, okay? So 
it's not easy sometimes when the strongest of all evidence is there, which was what? Yeah, I saw, right? The investigator saw it, okay? That's very difficult to, to challenge, you know, unless you start challenging this. Oh, Louise, because you wear glasses, you might not think you see what you see, okay? Or you don't see clearly. That's rarely done, okay? That's a poor way of challenging it. But there's other ways of saying what you saw might not be what you think you saw. This is what was actually happening. There was no risk involved in the process, etc. Okay? So whatever you do, whoever does it, when you do it, you have to dispel risk. Okay? You always attempt to dispel risk as much as you can. Okay? And bring down those observations, the impact of those observations. And then you follow it up with the normal administrative stuff. We're going to correct this. We're going to correct that. We already corrected this, et cetera. Right. And is it important to do it um, only when you get uh, 483 or even when you get some observations, but you don't want to risk it es escalating the next time that FDA shows up at your door? Always do it. That's the short answer. You always do it and you do it if possible in front of the investigator. Okay. You correct it as soon as right. possible. Even if it's minor, never mind if you can defend it. Doesn't matter. You correct it, correct in front of the investigator. There's reason for that. Okay. He documents that in the EIR, the Establishment Inspection Report. Okay. That's not the 43. The 43 is an attachment to the EIR, but the actual report that is written it's very different from the 483, okay? It actually documents the entire journey of the investigator in that plan, including his professional opinions on certain things, including the answers that he got on his observations. So it's a, it's a very complex document that is designed to capture all the evidence that happened during the, the inspection. Right. So it means basically that uh, you should be more on your toes than with uh, some external audit uh, from another company. Sometimes it's wise to keep your mouth shut at the right time. Okay. And sometimes it's wise to give an answer the way you see things, not necessarily continue giving answers if you're not asked. Okay. So I don't know if I explain myself, but you have to be very careful with it. And a regulatory affairs manager that survived three, four FDA inspections, that's equals a PhD in FDA interactions, okay? You know, especially in a complex inspection, especially in a big company, okay? So this is, I tell my clients now that I'm on the outside, the goal here is not to walk away without an FDA 43, okay? Don't worry if you get a 43. A 43 can be full of low-hanging fruit, okay? And it's not going anywhere. It doesn't mean anything. It just means a casual documentation of minor violations that you're going to correct. And you're going to have proof that you corrected them. And if you can correct them before the inspection is over, when you have what is called the exit discussion, when you sit down with the FDA investigator and discuss the 483 item by item, there's nothing more powerful than an answer that says, Sir, ma'am, we have corrected that. We have corrected, and here's the evidence. Sir, we have corrected that, and here's the evidence. Sir, we have corrected that. You get my idea, right? By the time the exit discussion is over, 
you've corrected a big percentage of that 483, okay? Now, serious observations, that's a different story. You can end up with a 483 with one item, maybe design validation, maybe validation in general, process of validation, you name it. That's a serious one, okay? That one hurts. That one hurts very much. <laughs> so it doesn't matter the number you get, it, the impact of each one of them. If you're stingy, not that I'm saying we have those out there, but believe me, <laughs> you know, even a blind squirrel will run into one of those guys. There's so many around, but let's say that you're a CEO and you decide you're just going to cut all foreign outside party inspections into your plant because they cost too much money. Oh, 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 they cost too much money, you know, too much money. I can't, I can't do it this year. Well, guess what? That inspection could have detected one or two serious FDA observations that once they're documented, and if they're serious enough, okay, especially for a company located overseas, if they're serious enough, these are the possible implications. I'm not saying they will all happen. I'm just saying that they're all possible and it has happened, okay? Number one, an import alert to your product, okay? That's based on the appearance clause. Remember that. I explained that already on section 801, the appearance of a violation. Number two, you can end up with a warning letter. Once you end up with a warning letter, it is a very difficult world to deal with because you have time constraints to answer those violations and to correct them and to provide the evidence that you have corrected them. But the whole thing is complicated because you don't own the time schedule anymore, the FDA does, okay? So it, the you have the burden to prove something that they want to their liking. They can answer back that we find your answers unsatisfactory because you didn't provide the evidence and so on. They have so many ways of describing it, okay? During this whole process, Jan, the entire machine is going cha-ching, 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 every day in production, every day in intention of the product, every day. So those thousands that you were going to spend in preparing yourself for that audit can possibly be hitting the millions now for your company. That's the way it works. That's And a lot of CEOs don't realize that. They don't recognize the power that the agency has with the way the laws are designed, the appearance of a violation. Do you have some final advice about uh, audit readiness? Something that uh, maybe is not as obvious, so we all understand, okay, review, you know, all your processes and so on and so on. But is there something that is uh, not that obvious that uh, most companies just uh, oversee? Well, if I can give one, one advice, in our world, everybody has this advice to say, always be prepared. Always it's be prepared. To say, right? Right? I mean, a junior engineer is going to, you know, oh, I heard it from a boss, you know, always be prepared. But that's not the key. The key is how to get right. there, okay? And the best analogy that I can use, okay, is an army, an army, okay? In an army, you take some, excuse the term, but little dummy young teenager from the streets and you bring him in and you expect him to eventually become the backbone of the army okay how do you do that by training by training by training by training to a point of muscle reaction have you ever heard that term in police right. work that you react without 
You, you know what to do. You're trained what to do. You don't think about it too much because you do what you were trained to do and you do it right. So you do that to your company as a general concept. You bring them in and you train them to the QSR. You train them to the ISO. You train them. You train them. Eventually, they're going to be the backbone of your company. They're going to be the ones that's going to defend it or they're going to be the ones that are going to expose it in front of the FDA. Right. So basically, instead of only investing in the, the hard skills, how to do something, it's also important to invest in the philosophy of quality so people always have it in their minds when they work. Exactly. There is no other way to function, okay, except that way that you've been trained in a quality system. And you reaffirm it every so often. And you test them to see if they're well-trained. And they pass that knowledge on to their inferiors, their lower levels. So there's no one way, man, okay? There's no one way it's going to be a cure-all. Okay, I've been in this business too long. I've seen too many things. But that one, I've seen it very effective. Luis, thank you very much uh, for uh, this discussion. I think uh, it has enlightened me and I'm pretty sure it will enlighten many listeners, especially those who are overseas, who are not aware of the FDA tactics. Luis, if somebody wants uh, to get a consultation from you, what is the best way uh, to reach out to you? The best way, Ian, is to contact me through email and that's supaso. International, one word, S-U-P-A-S-O, international at gmail.com. Or they can contact me. Uh, I have a, a little website, www.supaso.com. Or they can contact me in my uh, WhatsApp, uh, 915-731-0237. Any one of those methods is fine. But I do prefer email because I travel quite a bit or I'm not you know, busy with other projects or You know, so an email, I always answer emails. I'm uh, truly grateful for uh, your time and uh, for sharing uh, your experience. Thank you very much, Jan, for giving me this opportunity. I've enjoyed it also. Thanks for listening to the Qualitalks podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. If you want to learn more about GMP, please visit us at www.qualistory.com. Stay compliant and see you at the next one.